From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe again from you. Hi, this is Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors, and welcome to this week's edition of Naps Chat. I'm here with our Executive Vice President, Ivan Butts. Now, Ivan, we have a lot to unpack today. Uh, I don't know that the allotted time is going to get is going to be enough, but uh, you know, we're going to have to cover the hiring of a new Postmaster General, the resignation of one of the members of the Board of Governors a recent Government Accountability Office uh, report, and also our efforts in, uh, in trying to promote postal relief in Congress. Yeah, Bob, certainly a busy week uh, legislatively up here in D.C. And with, uh, the, and with news happening within the Postal Service. Definitely a busy week. Yeah, it is absolutely busy. In fact, today, which is uh, Friday, the 8th of May, the Board of Governors had its first meeting since announcing the hiring of a new Postmaster General, that's Louis DeJoy, and he officially will take the helm from the current Postmaster General, Megan Brennan, on June 15th, 2020, which is around a month from now. So that's going to be a pretty quick transition. Yeah, it will be a fast transition, but you know, uh, Megan had announced that she was leaving at the end of January, but ended up staying on for some period of time after that. So they'll get some time to transition in with Mr. DeJoy, and I'm sure that'll be uh, helpful to him to get acclimated to the environment of the United States Postal Service. I mean, understanding he he comes from a logistics background, dealing with logistics, I think that that this is a a different level than maybe the 9,000 employees he managed uh, in his companies versus the 600,000 postal employees and and operations that that we run which are very diverse i mean you know we even say within our own structure how a processing plan is almost like a different company than a than a ao which is a different company from a ndc so you know even within our own agency we we know that our operations are very dynamic Within, within the organization. One of the uh, issues that you and I have spoken about, and I've spoken with our president, Brian Wagner, is that the majority of postmaster generals since po- the Postal Reorganization Act of uh, 1971 have been that the majority are actu- actually come from the private sector and are not career postal employees. In fact, if we go sort of after Winton Blunt, who was a holdover from the Nix administration, who was the Postmaster General at the point of the Postal Reorganization, if we track the history, uh, following Blunt was uh, an Elmer Klassen who worked uh, for the American can industry, which he manufactured tin cans, and he became Postmaster General. He was succeeded by a guy named Benjamin Baylor, who was a CEO of Continental Oil, who served three years as PMG, and Elmer Klassen served three years. Paul Carlin, who served around a year, was out of the association world with the National School Board Administration and the International Audiovisual Association. He was followed by Al Casey, who was the CEO of American Airlines, who served less than a year as PMG. 
Bob Tisch served for around two and a half years. He was the CEO of the Lowy's Corporation. Tony Frank was the CEO of First Nationwide Bank, and he served four years. And Marvin Runyon, who served six years, believe it or not, former CEO of Ford and Nissan Motors. So that presents, and that that's in contrast to folks like Bill Bulger, who actually served seven years as PMG. Bill Henderson served three years, Jack Potter, nine, Pat Donahoe, five, and Megan Brennan is completing uh, her fifth year. You see, even though this is a independent establishment of the government, the majority of postmaster generals have actually been from the private sector. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, fact to, to look at uh, and when we look at the history of our, our postmaster generals. I think one of the issues is that we, we look— uh, it's not even an issue, just the fact that, you know, most of us uh, now employed with the Postal Service really only had one realization of the uh, outside PMG in our postal careers, and that's with um, Marvin Runyon. That experience for us as a, a, a agency, how that was. An interesting fact, also noteworthy, is Harvard University some time ago, back I think in 2017, did a comparison of projected what the average tenure is of a private sector CEO, and that's around 7.2 years. That means in the private sector, a individual who runs an organization is more than seven years is CEO. Mm-hmm. However, the private sector experience within the Postal Service is that our private sector CEOs of the Postal Service, the Postmaster General, has lasted less than three years. I don't know what why there's a significant difference. Maybe it's the lack of private sector culture within the Postal Service. That is, is a public agency. This is not a profit-driven agency. This is a service-driven agency. And maybe that corporate culture is somewhat dispiriting to some of these private sector CEOs. Yeah, I think it's a... a a different corporate makeup when you're looking at us as, again, as you just stated, that we're providing a service, not not so much as uh, driving a profit, driving for profit. We're providing a service to America. So, uh, and then I don't know, I, I, you know, didn't look that far at that, but, you know, we know that postmaster positions used to be parsonage appointments uh, by, by whoever won election. So, I don't know if that's a carryover from that. It could be. So, you know. But, um, again, but we def- definitely are an agency, uh, you know, that has a, a unique uh, mission uh, versus a corporation which has a, a profit mission. Now, the Board of Governors on their hiring, which was announced last week, which followed the announcement, followed the resignation from the Board of Governors of David Williams, the former Inspector General of the United States Postal Service and an individual had distinguished service as Inspector General of other agencies. I don't know if it is coincidence or it was motivated by certain decisions made at the White House and the Treasury Department, as has been speculated in a number of news media and also in some interest groups, that uh, they understood the reason why Williams resigned However, they were still disappointed in that decision. Yeah, well, we were we were certainly surprised here to hear that uh, Dave Williams uh, had resigned from the Board of Governors. He, he was, he, as you mentioned, he served as our chief inspector of the OIG 
uh, for a number of years, and, and he was excellent to work with in that capacity. As a member of the uh, co-chair of the Board of Governors, I mean, he was very easy to to work with, and we met with him on a couple occasions and just talked to him. So I, I think there is some truth to those articles that said uh, that spoke of his frustrations with uh, um, the way the board was uh, influenced by Treasury and some of the things that may have came down uh, from that. But he will be sorely, sorely missed on that Board of Governors by postal employees because I feel as though he was the voice of America when talking about uh, the Postal Service and the voice of employees when he talked about the Postal Service. He did actually push innovation as a major component of postal uh, competitiveness. Absolutely. He even did that when he was... uh, Chief Inspector. I mean, you know, we would go up to to his white paper audit reviews and they would talk about innovation and always looking to see how the post office could grow. So he was very forward thinking in that regard. And he was well respected not only by the by the employee associations, but also on Capitol Hill. Absolutely. Integrity and, and truth and honesty. One of the items brought up in this morning's Board of Governors meeting was uh, John Barger, a member of the Board of Governors who chaired the search committee for a new postmaster general, laid out the process, began the comments by by being somewhat defensive about the decision because of the pushback that his, the decision has uh, sort of received in a lot of the print media and a lot of the in, a stakeholder, in the stakeholder community by the decision of the relationship of DeJoy, um, his political involvement with the president of the United States. That being said, Barga did lay out and specify that it was a unanimous decision by the bipartisan Board of Governors, and he laid out a process where Chelsea Reynolds, which was a private headhunting firm, identified 53 candidates for Postmaster General. The Board of Governors had a first interview of 14 out of these 53 candidates, seven of whom were brought back for a second interview, which lasted, according to Governor Barger, three hours per member of the Board of Governors, and there were four finalists. So Louis DeJoy is one out of 53 candidates, and he indicated that uh, DeJoy, as being a CEO of um, New Breed Logistics, which was a contractor to the Postal Service for a number of years, so he has involvement with the Postal Service, and he grew a family-owned 10-employee company to a national logistics company, and this being a skill set that would be helpful in the Postal Service. Well, yeah, like I said earlier, he has logistics background in in his company, nothing on the scale of what we do here uh, at the the United States Postal Service, but he does have some transferable skills, I would believe. And it's unfortunate that, you know, but how it was reported out uh, by the news media just really... uh, uh, really tied them to, and it's, it wasn't that it was untrue. I mean, I think as a documented fact, it was just that, you know, he was one of the, a, a top funds getter for the president. I mean, that's, that's just the fact. doesn't mean that it wasn't a, a good process. Uh, but it does raise, for some people, it would raise questions. The irony to this, and as we go back to postal history, of which both you and I are, uh, you know, we consider ourselves somewhat expert, Prior to postal reorganization, the top 
contributor to the president or the or the head of the the party in power, the president's party, was usually nominated to be postmaster general. For example, Larry O'Brien, who was the postmaster general for uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, was also the chairman of the Democratic Party while uh, President Johnson uh, was running for president in 1964. Also, uh, Postmaster General James Farley was Postmaster General under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was the chairman of the Democratic Party while FDR was running for president. So this is sort of a reversion, arguably, a reversion back to history. And that's why I said, you know, for for years, that's what the Postmaster General was. It was a parsonage appointment by the winning administration, and it was looked at as a covenant position. So... I, I chuckle when I say this, and but I don't think the president of the United States is going to propose this, that the uh, postmaster general once again become a cabinet-level official, in as much as the same, you know, the outcome is uh, similar to what would have occurred prior to reorganization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the other point, that, that, that in those days, there the postmaster was actually a cabinet appointee of the president. So I don't know. And in those days, the cabinet appointee served at the pleasure of the president— Whereas now the postmaster generally general is hired by a board of governors and they are appointed by the president subject to the confirmation by the Senate. So it's one step removed right. from a politi- a direct appointee of the president. It's just ir- ironic that yeah. th- more than anything else. Yes, it is. Let, let's pivot a little bit. In the wake of the, new, uh, the hiring of a new postmaster general and the departure of David Williams, was another related event, and that was the release yesterday, Thursday, May 7th, of a governmental accountability uh, report, which was done at the request of Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Ron Johnson. And at that time, the Republican lead uh, lead person on the House Oversight and Reform Committee, uh, Jim Jordan of, of Ohio, and it was a sort of sobering government accountability reports um, sort of review. I don't know. I don't know. Sobering. I, I think we've seen GAO reviews in the past that that address the financial conditions of the post office and don't paint a a a, a strong picture financially for the postal service. Uh, looking at it from a, a corporate, a, a more corporate line as a business. Again, and I think that's putting the post office in a framework that it was a never never intent to be put in uh, by the architects of our Constitution. Again, the Postal Service was designed to be a service to America, to bind America. Those were the things. Now, if we want to look at the a Postal Service who can turn a profit or, or you know, uh, that, that can uh, pour money back into the government, then that's not looking at the Postal Service in the, in the, in the light uh, of how it was intended to be. So, yeah, but you're right. The GAO report uh, highlights some things that have been highlighted in the past about the financial sustainability of the Postal Service as it's currently formed. One of the interesting factoids in the GAO report was its remark that bankruptcy would probably be inappropriate for the Postal Service. And I think this is a dr- direct rebuke to the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee, Ron Johnson, who has been musing about forcing the Postal Service into bankruptcy so it could reorganize. And in fact, the GAO solicited the opinion 
of the National Bankruptcy Conference who weighed in on this and indicated that because of a whole series of statutory reasons, the Postal Service could not, in fact, file for bankruptcy under either Chapter 9 or Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. So that sort of pathway to reorganization that Johnson was musing about for a number of years is sort of uh, cut off. Yeah, that was something. And again, when he first, when Chairman Johnson first started talking about the post office, just let him file bankruptcy a few years ago, um, we we talked with uh, Bruce uh, Moyer about that, our legislative council, and then that's when he told us that you know it, it would it would it would be uh, not even legislatively or legally possible for the post office office to do that. So um, we understood that from the very beginning, but maybe uh, Mr. Johnson feels that it, it, it should be done even if it can't be done. It's the path, you know, what path, I think from Mr. from this Senator Johnson's perspective, it's what path leads to reorganization that could conceivably lo- lead to privatization or dismantling the Postal Service, which is sort of akin to what the president proposed in the 2000, or the, the task force that was reported to the president, reported back in the winter of 2018, and the Office of Management and Budget recommended back in June 2018. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the Government Accountability Office did lay out a number of questions that Congress needs to consider. They include, as you review the Postal Service, what you need to look at what services it provides. And this is a direct inquiry into what is the scope of the universal service obligation to the Postal Service, Mm -hmm. because the Postal Regulatory Commission over the past two years or so has has asked Congress to uh, say, look, tell us what 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 the American public actually needs from the Postal Service and what the customers actually want. It would appear that the Government Accountability Office is doubling down on that sort of level of inquiry because it is this number one question it asks as we look at what the Postal Service ought to look like during a relief discussion. Yeah, but but, and I think one of the the troubling points for me with that is that it's it's taking the USO the universal service obligation and and want and want to redefine it as who needs a universal service obligation like there's some Americans who don't need it and some Americans who do need it and that's not the foundational principle of what we are what we are as an agency we deliver to every household in America uh, six days a week seven days with packages and that's what we've been enacted to do and that's what we do now now if you want to define and and start defining well okay well this these people over here they need it these people over here they don't need it so we don't worry about them anymore i think that's a bad recipe for a united states of america we'll talk about that and that's you know the united states postal service is usa made and one of the, uh, the issues or one of the um, things that the EJO looked at was the international experience with the universal service obligation. And they think they identified it was New Zealand or maybe Australia. What they did is when they privatized or corporatized the Postal Service, they provide in urban settings, three-day-a-week mail delivery. In rural settings, 
more frequent deliveries. So you had a bifurcated or two levels of service depended where you live. Mm. And also prices rose in each in all of the internationally investigated areas. Yeah, and even with those services, I've read some reports where even with that 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 service uh, or service declines or service changes, then the mail was still erratic and sporadic, and they had wide wide uh, levels of delays in mail uh, up to weeks uh, from from some of the reports I w- I read. Uh, so the, again. The model for America has has been laid out by the founders of America, and, and it's worked for over 200, close to 250 years. So, and I think we need to make sure that it stays sustainable through the through, through the future. The General Accountability Office also talked about whether or not the Postal Service should be self-sustaining as it is right now, despite the fact it has obligations that are imposed upon no other. Uh, federal agency or private agency, and that is pre-funding its retiree health benefits, in addition to the obligation it has to deliver mail to the American public no matter where they live, work, uh, and at an affordable price. Um, so that's a question that the GAO has asked Congress to explore. Yeah, but and, and that's a great point, Bob, uh, that you bring up. That, that we have been tasked with pre-funding our retiree health benefits 75 years out at 100%, um, which, it, which accounts for, for almost virtually all the losses the post office has seen in these last few years. Now, we do have some infrastructure things that need to be addressed and fixed and, and some, some things that need to be cut, which there have been tremendous cuts made already. Um, but how much uh, uh, sustainability... Or, or support in sustainability the post office uh, should receive or needs to receive from Congress. I, I think it's something that we do need to look at. In, 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 the, uh, in the, I would say, the fat years uh, when the post office had excess at the, end of, at the end of the fiscal year, that money was turned back over to the, to the government. Uh, uh, now, now we're in these lean years where the post office needs support. And, and now it's viewed as it's unsustainable and can't be, can't be supported by the federal government to support America uh, by making sure that they have a reliable mail service. For, for those who might recall where you, know, you, re- you reference, Ivan, that the Postal Service has been forced to give back money to the federal government to get when they had the, the, fat, the so-called fat years, just for our listeners, that refers to where we were forced— to pay for retiree benefits back to the federal government. And they started changing the formula by which the assessment was made to the Postal Service for retiree and health benefits, uh, which cost the Postal Service in the 1990s and the early part of the two, you know, 2000, to, you know, 2000, 2003, in that, in that area, that we had to give back money. In addition to when we were it was estimated that we were overfunding our retirement system, and we had to put money aside in an in an escrow account because it would affect the budget if we got back the money. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the last area that the GAO wants to explore is what ought the structure of the postal service be, and they gave four options. Number one was to be a federal agency, akin to, as we referred to before, a cabinet-level agency. And that's a reversion to the past when um, the Pulse Service was political and was accountable to Congress and to the president directly. This was a cabinet-level post. 
Secondly is what we have right now, which is an independent establishment of the federal government, which in part is self-sustaining through postage and also receives a modest appropriation for revenue for gone for certain uh, obligations that it has. And now we're seeking assistance because of the pandemic. That's option two. Option number three is something known as a government-sponsored enterprise, which is generally a private sector entity, but its board is appointed by the president, and it could it operates like a private company, but it has this impression of government sponsorship. And lastly, is a private a private organization, and. GAO said Congress should decide which one of these four models, if you want to restructure the Postal Service, what to ought it be? Well, I think um, when we look at that, I think if, if Congress needs to look at that, then they need to look at what America is saying. And America is overwhelming saying over 92 percent that they want they do not want to privatize Postal Service. America is saying uh, that they would they, they agree with. Uh, helping the Postal Service with finances uh, to make, make it sustainable versus uh, it shutting down versus, versus it being privatized. Uh, Postal Service continues to be one of the most trusted uh, federal agencies uh, that we have year in and year out. So uh, so the people have spoken. So if, they, if we're going to ask our legislators who are the representatives of the people to look at it, then the people have already spoken on where they feel they are with our uh, United States Postal Service and where they want to see it go. So um, I, I welcome that. I, I would welcome our legislators looking at what America is saying about the Postal Service and then taking action uh, to, to keep it sustainable and moving it forward in, in, at the at the wishes of their constituents. I would appreciate that. Now, you, you reference that the American public believes the Postal Service should remain a government entity. It provides services. And um, for those who are un, unaware, last week, uh, it was a bipartisan poll that came out where over 90 percent of the American public believe that the Postal Service should be provided relief by Congress. And, well, a very strong bipartisan majority I mean, when I say bipartisan, I'm saying partisan. I mean, Democrats and Republicans believe that the Postal Service should be provided a direct appropriation in this emergency, not necessarily loans and not necessarily increased postage is what the president is proposing. So they believe, the American public believes overwhelmingly, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, that the Postal Service is deserving and needs an appropriation to help it survive. Yeah. So, again, that goes to the point. You know, we welcome the GAO uh, suggestion to legislators to, to look uh, at the Postal Service and look at and look and see. And we say look and see what your constituents say about their United States Postal Service and then and then work work for your constituents. The last uh, topic I want to talk about with you, Ivan, is about what we've been doing over here at NAPS, and particularly the Zoom meetings that you have led around the country to certain key states, educating our uh, members on how to best educate their members 
in Congress and their United States senators about the dire situation the Postal Service is in due to the pandemic. Yeah, we've been very we've been very aggressive here in the last few weeks with our grassroots efforts out here, reaching out to legislators on on the subject of the sustainability of the Postal Service, support for H.R. Uh, 6425, uh, the Congressman Nagus has entered, uh, has introduced for the $25 billion uh, in emergency funding for the Postal Service. So, you know, we, we, we've been reaching out to our state led chairs and these last, this last week, and um, we've been reaching out to individual states that we identified for a little extra attention and getting some getting members to uh, continue our, our grassroots efforts uh, with with in those particular states with some some of those uh, senators, again, some who have shown their support for the Postal Service by support on uh, Senate Resolution 99 against the privatization of the Postal Service. We're trying to, we're going to expand upon that support they're showing to to hopefully transition that support into real legislation for the sustainability of the Postal Service. I mean, you know, they're, they're saying they support us in this, the Senate resolution. Well, now we need that Senate resolution to become real in legislation. Yeah, and the vehicle for postal survival will likely be the next chapter in COVID-19 relief that will emerge from the House of Representatives. We are working with the House leadership, as well as Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney of New York, the chairman of the House Oversight Reform Committee, and her subcommittee chair, Jerry Connolly, Peter King, a Republican from New York, Mm -hmm. Mark Amadai, a Republican from Nevada. This is a bipartisan effort. And we most recently are helping to recruit more members of Congress to join this uh, Postal Preservation Caucus, which is, but it was established by those four leaders in the United States House of Representatives. Yes, and 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 again, we're going to continue. We're going to continue to do our legislative work, even in this COVID nineteen environment. We're going to continue to work as hard as we can to try to uh, help with the legislative end of of support for the United States Postal Service and its sustainability for uh, not just the the employees of the Postal Service, but for America and and delivery that touches every every door. With that, Ivan, I'm going to wish you a great weekend and for everyone out there to be safe and to be healthy. Thank you. Have a good weekend. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter.